0: All right, I wanted to go to a really rare text tonight that we almost never look at uh, as a movement, Matthew 28. When's the last time you heard a sermon on of Matthew 28? So Matthew 28, of course, says, Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Um, and I want to just point by point. I, I actually, hopefully, um, I'm, I'm going to say some things that you've heard before. With this passage many times, and then I'm gonna kind of bring it around in the end and, and maybe hopefully say something or a couple of things that are, are a new thought for at least some of you and, and a new challenge uh, as we apply this passage in the future. Um, but this passage is, is amazing. It, it, you know, it's, it's one of the sort of the, the lifeblood core foundations of Christianity in general. And it, there's so much in there. Um, and I want to go point by point. The first thing it talks about, or that I want to talk about in here, is just that we, it, this passage gives us our mission from God, which is uh, to go make disciples. Um, and, but it's interesting. If you look at this passage, Jesus doesn't actually say to go make disciples. You can look again. That's not what it says. I bet you thought that's what it says, but that's not what the passage says. And if you're looking at your Bible right now and you're thinking, mine says go make disciples. Well, here's the issue with that. Imagine I were to tell you guys that tonight I'm going to shoot my wife a text as soon as I get off uh, uh, from this call and tell her I love her. Now, the second half of that is important to the first part, isn't it? Because if you just take out the, I'm going to shoot my wife, without the a text part, you have a completely different uh, sentence. One is a good sentence. The other one is a crime. And so what Jesus actually says there is, Not go make disciples, but go make disciples of all nations. The mission to go to all the nations is the gospel. It's the gospel proclamation. See, if we just think that it is about go make disciples, then we can make a church however we want. And the church can be homogenous. It can be one race. It can be one age group. It can be one type of people, one socioeconomic class. But Jesus' instruction is to go make a diverse church. Go gather the nations. This is in response to the promise from Abraham uh, many years ago. And only God can do it. Now think of the creation order in Genesis when God makes humanity and he gives them the charge of working together as humanity to, to take care of his creation. And humanity rebels against it, and they divide, and they're warring against each other, and it says there's all kind of violence. And God sort of presses the restart button with the flood. And after the flood, humanity, again, he gives them the instruction, now go be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and go rule over it in a harmonious, unified way as a group. And once again, humanity rebels, but this time in a different way. This time they decide to stay together as one and rebel against God. And so God says, once again, I have to break up that rebellion. But he does it by breaking up humanity into different people groups. And, you know, sometimes you'll be at a wedding and you'll hear the minister say, what God has put together, let no man tear asunder, right? But the opposite is also true. What God breaks apart, let no man try to put together. And the message in Genesis 11 becomes clear in Genesis 12 because God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to bless the nations through you. I'm going to bring them back together one day. Humanity has spent thousands of years trying to put together in different ways humanity, and we keep failing because only God can bring together the nations. And that's what he wants to do, to show that he is God, this is his mission. And so it's absolutely vital that we understand that we go make disciples of all the nations. So that's that's the mission part. Our task in that part, we're given a task too. He says, teach them to obey everything. The part on that I want to focus for just a minute is within the mission to go make disciples we are given the task of being all things to all people because we know the mission is to gather a diverse group of people we know it's going to be hard it's going to be a challenge we're going to have to learn how to be all things to all people now i could spend a lot of time on that and I, you know, as i think many of you know we do all kinds of workshops on culture and being all things to all people I'm not gonna focus on that tonight. Uh, Sometimes we do need to learn uh, the gospel itself. Sometimes we need to learn how to be all things to all people on an individual or a cultural group level. But I wanna focus tonight on the fact that sometimes we need to learn about the culture as a larger entity and where the culture is at so that we can Proclaim the gospel to it in a way that's going to be effective. And that's the part I want to focus on here for just a moment, is the go make part of this verse. To go make. Uh, The mission to go to the culture. Here's the thing. Have any of you that's over 40 ever looked and said, man, the world is a completely different place than it was when I was a kid? You ever feel that I see some heads nodding you're not going crazy. The world literally is a different place than it was 20 and 30 and 40 years ago. The the world, the culture of the world has shifted in a cataclysmic way that is very unique in the history of the world. In fact, one could argue that there's only been two or three shifts this large in all of known human history. So think about that Uh, from prehistory till about the 1600s is what's called the prehistory period. And the way that people uh, processed knowledge back then was that they believed that truth could only be known through divine revelation. And the authority figures were the gods, God, God sacred texts and priests. They were the final word on anything and they determined what was truth and the world ran that way for thousands of years. Then it shifts very dramatically in the 1600s and and the culture changed to this scientific enlightenment period where suddenly truth was Uh, knowable. It was definable. You could observe it, test it, repeat, and know specific truth through scientific means. And the arbiter of truth ceased to be the divine or divine messengers or sacred texts. And now it was universities and centers of academia. And that's called the modern period most of us older folks that's what we grew up in was the modern period there is truth there's absolute truth you can know what the absolute truth is you can figure it out through science and reason and logic and the universities and academic institutions like that are are what really determine what is truth and you say no wait a minute we still trust the bible to a degree but we we often rely on seminaries or You know, something like that to tell us how to read the Bible and how to to get truth from the Bible. So even there, there's kind of a marriage. But in the in the recent decades, towards the last half of the 20th century, uh, it started to shift again into what is called postmodernity. You've probably heard that term. A lot of people hear it, don't really understand what it means, honestly, or or have a twisted understanding of it. Some people will say, well, postmodern means that uh, they don't believe in absolute truth. They're trying to get rid of absolute truth. That's actually inaccurate. Um, Postmoderns don't believe that there is no truth. They believe in uh, plural truths so that uh, you can have different perspectives, different experiences. And those truths are equally valid. Now, there's some truth to that. When you think about it, somebody growing up in Africa or Asia or the United States will have a very different perspective of the world, and there's some truth there. Um, However, there's some faults there because there are some areas where truth is singular. Uh, For instance, if you climb to the top of a 46-story building and jump off, there's a singular truth of what's going to happen when you hit the concrete below. There is not plural truths. Uh, of what's going to happen. Um, so now I say all that, I, I'm, I'm making a point here. There's been a huge culture shift. When I was a kid, I had a TRS-80 Tandy computer. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of a Tandy computer. It was like... Three hands that went up. That's shocking. I feel old now. Um, Gosh, I thought I'd at least get Heather's hand going up. Come on. Uh, There were some adults on the side. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. A Tandy was a computer that you bought at Radio Shack. And it was really old. It ran on DOS. The best thing we had on there was a game called Canyon Climber, which was ridiculously, like, just... Not good, but imagine using that computer in today's world and trying to get on the internet and trying to get on Bluetooth and trying to use a computer like that that used those big old floppy disks in today's world. You couldn't do it. And in a lot of ways, because our world has shifted so dramatically, we are using a Tandy computer in our thought process and in our approach to the world when the world has moved on to iPads and the latest computers and and we are woefully still trying to use techniques and, and thought patterns from 30 and 40 years ago that simply will not be very effective today. I don't have all the answers. I'm just throwing this out there for communities to think about and talk. And I know you guys are talking this year about Knowing God and making God known, and some of that, and so uh, this was really on my heart to kind of share and uh, get you at least thinking about it. Now, here's the challenge. In the past, um, the mission of Christianity was to go to the pagan world, right? Find the unlost, uh, find the lost. Sorry, share the gospel with them and draw them, attract them into the church, give them an invite. To church study the bible with them get them to come out to church and you know the the more effort you put in you would probably be somewhat successful and i think in a lot of ways we were very successful evangelistically in the 80s and early 90s because we did it so much now i'm not saying that we should not evangelize that we shouldn't pass out invitations or ask people to study the bible what i am asking is us to think about the fact that is that that is a world and a technique that is actively decreasing. That mission field of the pagan world is actively decreasing. There is now a new group. In the the old world, it was Christian and pagan, and we tried to get pagans to become Christians. And even when you talk to a pagan who wasn't necessarily interested in Christians, most of them still respected Christians. And they knew if they got in trouble they needed to go find a christian for help they knew that christians were moral folks and they'd say things like man you don't want me coming to church because you know probably lightning would strike if i walked in the building things of that nature now there's a new group and it's called post-christian post-christian doesn't just mean you used to be christian and now you're not it means there is a culture That has grown up with a familiarity of Christianity, either they did used to be Christian or their parents were Christian or they grew up in a Christian culture. And they now have zero interest in Christianity. They have zero interest in that sort of God-based worldview. They have they have moved on and see it as obsolete see it as, uh, and in fact, the post-Christian culture now defines themselves against Christianity. They have taken the things of Christianity that they like, concern for the poor, uh, helping the outcast and the oppressed, some of those things. They have grabbed those values, rejected Jesus, and rejected Christianity. The post-Christian group, then, We have to be careful with that because we will go out and we'll try to contextualize with them and try to be like them and show them how cool we are and show them how normal we are. But post-Christians are not interested in you evangelizing them. In fact, they will try to evangelize Christians. And I would argue that if you look at the group under 30 years old, the world has been more effective at evangelizing our young people than we have in evangelizing young people. That's statistics and it's facts. Because there's a post-Christian world out here. And here's the challenge, turn over to 1 Corinthians. I'll try to go through this quickly. In 1 Corinthians chapter one, I'm gonna read just a couple of verses here real quick and get Get a feel for the kind of world that Paul grew, uh, what Paul lived in and shared the gospel. And in chapter one, verse 26, it says, brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. He said, understand that the world thinks you are nothing. The world is not impressed with you as Christians. This is what he's telling the first century. This is a shock to us we did not grow up like that we grew up in a world where we expected christianity christianity to be respected to be have equal footing in our society to be treated with respect where if somebody said they were a minister they were treated with respect and that world is still there but it is quickly vanishing and it is turning back to the world that paul dealt with look at chapter 3 verse 18. He says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he's wise in this age, let him become a fool so he can become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. Since it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the reasonings of the wise are futile. Uh, Chapter four, verse eight. Now, Paul is being very sarcastic here to a church in Corinth who thought, no, 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 the world will respect us. We're ruling over the world. We're big stuff now. And Paul says, you're already full. You're already rich. You've begun to reign as kings without us. And I wish you did reign so that we could also reign with you. For I think God has displayed us, the apostles, in last place, like men condemned to die. We have become a spectacle to the world, both to the angels and to people. We are fools for Christ, but you, oh, you're wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. Up to the present hour, we're both hungry and thirsty. We're poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. When we're slandered, we respond graciously. Even now, we are like the scum of the earth, like everyone's garbage. Paul lived in a world where Christians were viewed as scum. They were not respected. They didn't have the day off to go to church. They, the, 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 you know, people didn't greet them Merry Christmas when they checked out at stores. Society looked down on them. And here's the key. Listen to me. The, the Christians of Paul's day faced a world that believed that they, that they were more moral than Christians. This is going to be the massive shock for a lot of us. We now live in a world that thinks of itself As more moral than you are. They look at the way that you view sexuality, that you view gender, that you view gender roles, that you view, you know, environment, that you name it. They look at Christians and go, You are immoral because they've created their own plural truth of morality, just as they did in Paul's day so think of that someone who thinks you are immoral who assumes you are the scum of the earth and you go up and invite them to come to your group on sunday increasingly we are facing a world especially the younger generation that is simply not interested they're simply not going to listen to that attractional model I say this not to discourage us from evangelism, not at all, but to simply keep us from discouragement when we go out and wonder why we're getting less and less returns on our work. We've got to come up with new ways because we've got to face the world we are dealing with. So we can spend a long time on this. I'll kind of wrap it up here and say, how did the early church respond? It wasn't actually, they didn't do a whole lot of, now Paul would go places and debate and talk about ideas. But if you read about the early Christians, they didn't go out and do a lot of what's called attractional evangelism, where they try to offer invitations or invite you to church on Sunday. They didn't do that. They went out in the world and were deeply committed to living a radically different life from the people around them not just a little bit different where they attended church on Sunday a radically different life that stood out and i'll just folk i'll just give three ways and then we'll be done in Matthew 18 and for sake of time i will not read all of Matthew 18 but maybe you can uh, go back and do that on your own but i'll give three ways here in verses 1 through 14 it describes a community that cares for the least and the vulnerable in a radical way that will stand out in the world today. When you, when you ask most people in the street, when you think of a Christian, what do you most think of? I guarantee you that most answers will not say a group that cares for the least and the most vulnerable. Now they would love to see that, but that's not what they've seen in the past. That's not the expectation of christianity and so we will stand out in the world when we become serious about caring for the least and vulnerable not as a side thing but as the very heart and lifeblood of our community of what we do number 2 in verses 15 through 20 matthew describes a community that that gives to reconciliation at all levels, that is deeply committed to reconciling people to one another and to God. Sadly, sometimes Christians are not so good at that. We're not deep reconcilers. We don't look to reconcile society. We continue divides. But this passage here calls us, to be radical in our reconciliation. And then the final one is verse 21 through 35. We're called to be a community of radical forgiveness for mercy triumphs over judgment. That doesn't mean a community without any standards. In fact, the early church had very high standards and expectations, but they practiced radical forgiveness. They were known for loving their enemies. Uh, They were known for winning people, not winning arguments. They were known for forgiving one another and forgiving others. They took seriously the 70 times seven forgiveness thing. Um, Gosh, that's challenging stuff to be a community who cares for the least invulnerable, who reconciles at all levels and who shows radical forgiveness. But as we go out into the world, see, the world's not going to come to us. They're going to have to see a life that is inexplainable to them. They're going to have to see us go out and live it out and, and turn around and go, what is that about? Because increasingly, they will see themselves as more moral than us. Invitations will fall on deaf ears. And if we don't adapt to the culture and the way it shifted, We will not be able to effectively take Jesus' words to go and make disciples of all the nations uh, and put them in effect.